Amen. Join me now, then, in the Scripture text we read just a moment ago in Matthew 16. We're going to continue our study of Matthew's gospel, and we're at this crucial juncture about really what the church is, what is the church, what we're built upon, what defines us, who we are. And as we come to that text, as you just think about church life, it can be, can be a lot to it, I think, or at least seem like it. It can seem like quite a production. And I don't just mean the worship service at the church, but it's a whole network of activities, relationships, connections, and events, such that in the midst of all of that, it can be easy to lose sight of what a church really is, what defines us, what's our bedrock, what's our foundation, really what makes a good church. And of course, that's a key question if you're, if you're looking for a new church, right? Let's say you move to a new town and you're going to find a new assembly of believers. Well, what should you look for? What are those most foundational matters, the, the bedrock issues that the church stands on that you need to look at? Look under the hood, so to speak, to see what's really there. Well, interestingly, the National Association of Evangelicals conducted a survey a few years ago to, to consider and draw out what are the five factors that people most look for in a church when they're trying to figure out where to, where to plug in. Here's what they are. It, it, first and primary among them, and 19% of the respondents said they're looking for a friendly church above all things. And actually, that was tied with another 19% that were most concerned with children's programs. So most people, as they go out, they're concerned about how friendly the place is, and is this a place for their kids? Next, worship came in, that is the worship music came in at third at 16%. Sermons were a key factor. Another 14% and pastors were a deciding factor for another 12. Now, surely all of those things are important in some degree or another. I mean, certainly I pray that we would not become an unfriendly church, right? You want to find a friendly one, of course. And yet, how core are any of those factors? How much do they get to the bedrock that really makes what is a church a church? that defines what is a good, faithful church. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to sit down at Jesus' feet, the one who builds the church. We're going to ask him, what are you building the church on? The true church. Not what we want in an assembly, not what we hope to feel good about when we come in these doors on Sunday morning, but what defines the church that Jesus is building? Is it being friendly Is it our music? Is it our pastors? Or is it something far more fundamental, far more bedrock if we're going to be a true church? Well, of course, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, Christ builds His church on Himself. Christ is the rock. Christ is the foundation upon which we stand. And it's built on Himself around a true confession of faith in Him. So you're going to see that's the center of this text, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. And so the implication of this is the church is built on Christ around this confession of faith in Him. What does that mean for us? You need to confess Christ. That means you need to join the church. And that means if you're part of the church, you need to help us stay true to our confession, stay at the plumb line, stay at the needle, stay at north, stay at Christ. Let us not divert anywhere else, for that is just sinking sand and no foundation at all. So we'll see it over the next two weeks. We'll see four defining marks of Christ's true church the things we must hold on to, the things we must build on. We're going to look at the first two this morning. And the first is this. What makes a true church? It's that we confess Christ in the world. What makes a true church? We first confess Christ in the world. We confess Jesus as our Lord, as our Christ, as our Savior in the midst of the hostile world. The church is made up of confessors, 
That is, those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have no such faith, if you have no such confession, whatever you have, you don't have a church, despite whatever the group might call itself. Now, as we turn to the text, we left last time, that is when we were in Matthew a few weeks ago, uh, where Jesus, he was warning his disciples to not be taken in, to not be duped by the teachings of these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders of the time, namely the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And if you recall, these Jewish leaders, they represented pretty divergent ideas of Judaism and religion and God, uh, but they were united in their rejection of Jesus. And so Jesus was warning his own disciples against them, that they wouldn't heed them, they wouldn't listen to them, and such doubts wouldn't be fostered in their mind. Beware, he's saying, of the corrupting ideas and their doctrines of the Sadducees and Pharisees. And so as he warns them about this, though, and this is where we left last time, he's withdrawing from the land of Israel. If you might remember, as we even started earlier in chapter 16, he, he withdrew earlier to the northwest of Israel, toward Damascus, but now he's withdrawing north again, but to the northeast. And interestingly, he's going to another pagan area, another pagan country, Caesarea Philippi. Let's look at it, verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, now for generations, this area, Caesarea Philippi, it was defined, it was known by its idolatry. This was not Jewish country. This was not a place where one would ever expect to find hardly any, if any, Jews. Certainly then, it would be no place to try and find the Jewish king, the Messiah who is to come. You wouldn't expect to find him here. Before this place was even called Caesarea Philippi, the region was dubbed Panius, named after a cave there where the pagan god Pan was worshipped. This was the bastion of idolatry. Furthermore, even as the name was later changed to honor Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, understand that wasn't just a name in honor only. Uh, There was a temple built there for the worship of Caesar as a god. This was right in the midst, the heart of paganism. Paganism, idolatry, lies, false doctrine defined the land of Caesarea Philippi. So isn't it curious then that this is the place where Jesus withdraws with his disciples to then set up this great confession of the truth going out about who Jesus is. It starts there right in the heart and darkness of idolatry. And so there in the darkness of unbelief of this land, Jesus then looks to his disciples and poses this question. Again, back to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? What's the word on the street? What's the popular opinion about Jesus and his ministry? What are people saying about me? And Jesus, as he asked the question, he then gets the response from the disciples. The disciples' report uh, shows that at least... The public opinion, the public take on Jesus is favorable, if misguided. Look at this, verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, the crowds, they generally like Jesus. They thought he was a good guy. They even sensed and recognized that God was behind the things that are going on through Jesus' life, the mighty things Jesus was doing. That was the the consensus. But the more careful consensus among the crowds is that, yes, he might be a prophet of God. He might be worked 
or used by God. Maybe he's even the forerunner, the one to precede the conquering king, the Messiah. But he can't be the Messiah. Why? He's not going to rescue us from Roman oppressors, you see. He's not going to throw off our, the Roman agitators. That's the kind of Messiah the Jews expected, the one that they wanted, the one that they longed for. And they saw already Jesus didn't fit that kind of profile. So yes, that's what the masses say. That's the hot take on Jesus. That's how he's trending on Twitter. That's what the crowds think. But what about you? What do you think? Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And you have to stop there and just ask yourself that question to yourself. Who do I think Jesus is? There's no greater question that you can ask. Your answer to that question determines your eternity. It sets the trajectory for your whole life. Everything hinges on your answer to that question, who do you think Jesus is? Your soul is at stake as you consider the Christ question. And second, though so much rides on your answer about how you see this Jesus, this much is very clear. If you go and answer like the disciples do, your answer is going to set you at odds with this culture. It's going to set you against popular opinion. The majority opinion out there denies these truths about Jesus. They're going to, the, the world's going to oppose you for saying these things, namely for daring to say you have the truth and that they, by implication, are wrong. The world's not going to like you for that. To confess Christ, no, this means you're going to go against the culture. To them, you will be an outsider. Well, what is this confession? Well, we come to it. Here it comes, Peter's great confession, namely that Jesus is the Christ. Let's see. It's in verse 16, but we'll run up to it from verse 15 again. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, clearly, Jesus asked them all this question, His closest students, these 12 disciples. He's asking them collectively, what do you think? Who do you say that I am? In other words, a little more literally of the Greek, what do y'all think is what He said. And yet, Peter is the one who singularly speaks up. And I think there's at least two reasons for this. On the one hand... Peter does seem like a first among equals among the twelve. He's the choice disciple. Many times he's going to speak on behalf of the whole group. But more than this, Peter also, as we know, has a boldness about him, doesn't he? He has a bold faith. He's not afraid to tell you what he thinks. And sometimes it gets him in trouble, doesn't it? We're going to see that in a couple of verses later on this text, where Jesus is going to call him Satan. <laughs> and yet such pluck when properly directed, leads to bold right actions when others might hesitate or equivocate. Not Peter. 
Peter speaks first before any other, eager to confess his faith in Jesus as the Christ. And so let us unpack then Peter's confession. Namely, that you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, though we call him often, right, Jesus Christ, it's not as though Christ is Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. It's an office. It's a role that Jesus came to fulfill. The Hebrew equivalent to the term Christ is Messiah, And both the term Messiah and Christ mean that He is the anointed one. That's the meaning. And the anointed one in the Old Testament became this technical term that anticipated this promise that God was going to send a great king, a forever king, a king who would be the king of kings, who would reign over every nation and every people and do so forever. This was the anointed one. This was the Christ And that means for the nation of Israel, this coming Christ King, He was going to rescue them, right, from foreign agitators. He was going to let the Roman heads roll. And the Bible anticipates this. They weren't crazy for thinking so. If you want, look over with me at Psalm 2. There's so much here, but it's a great window into the promises about the Christ, the Messiah. Psalm 2 anticipates this great king and his coming rule, namely that he's going to rule over all the nations. Listen to this. The psalm opens with these foreign kings. They're plotting rebellion against the Lord, Yahweh, but also against his king, the anointed one, the Christ. Here it is. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They're all colluding. Namely, against the Lord and against His anointed, or in the Hebrew, His Messiah, or in the ancient Greek translation, His Christ. And what's their scheme? Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're trying to rebel against the Lord and against His King. Only resistance to this King, this Christ, is futile. As Psalm 2 continues, just look over to verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, that's God, laughs at them. Your rebellion's ridiculous. This is such foolishness. You really think you can stand against my king? And then down in verse 8, God tells this anointed king that this king's going to rule over all the nations of the earth. Look there in verse 8. He says, he tells the Messiah, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth. Get it? That's all the world, your possession. The anointed one there, he's going to be God's king to rule over all the earth and to do so forever. And so this means all authority in the world would come under him, this Christ. No other king or army would ever challenge him to supplant him. He's God's ruler For all the earth, for all time, all authority and rule are His. This is what it means to say He, Jesus, is the Christ. And so you see, when you confess then Jesus as the Christ, you must give Him your entire life and allegiance. You are subjecting yourself to Him, putting yourself under His full authority You no longer get to call the shots in your life. 
He does. We then confess and follow His Word in everything. This is what it means to say that Jesus is the Christ. We subject our thinking, even our doubts, and our objections right under Him and His Word. We don't get to say, oh yes, but I think, and then fill in the blank with whatever the flavor is today, right? Oh yes, but I think marriage looks like this, or love looks like this. Oh yes, but I think gender looks like this, or justice looks like this. Oh yes, but I think obedience looks like this. Oh yes, but I think, no. It's despite what I think, I will trust you. You are my Christ, my King. That's the confession of a Christian. That is the profession of the church. We profess allegiance, submission to King Jesus. And so it must be said then that this confession cannot be mere words, right? This is not some magical saying. You are the Christ, the Son of God. That's what it means to be a Christian, to say these things out of your mouth. No, it has to be an expression of the heart, doesn't it? One that doesn't merely say Jesus is king, but lives like it, however imperfect that might be. And we see that even with Peter here. But what it does mean is that he is our king, and that's what we mean when we say Jesus is the Christ. Back to Matthew 16. Or you can put, maybe put your finger in Psalm 2 and go to Matthew 16, because we're going to flip back and forth. Because Peter adds, and he says, you are the Christ, and then he says, you are the Son of the living God. That's the second half of this confession. And actually, you see that idea picked up in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 verse 7 says this, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, the Christ... You are my son, God said. Today I've begotten you. The Old Testament Testament anticipated, and Peter's professing it to be true now in Jesus of Nazareth, that this promised king, he's going to be David's son, he's going to come from the Davidic divine kingly line, yes, but he's not merely going to be David's son, but he's going to be God's son. Today I've begotten you. You are the son of the living God. You are going to be very God of very God, as the ancient creeds say. So Peter confesses, he proclaims by faith what the Father announced at Jesus' baptism. Do you remember? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Indeed, he's agreeing with the Father who Jesus is, that Jesus, namely, is God in flesh. And understand, Peter's declaring this by faith. Why? Because you can't see it with your eyes. He had nothing in his appearance, the way he looked, that gave the hint that he's God. He had no beauty that we should admire him. He looked no different than the average Jew. He didn't walk around with a halo. You didn't see him and just go, oh, that must be God. He's taller than everyone and has blue eyes. Not at all. He was veiled in full humanity such that you couldn't see his divine glory. 
And yet Peter is saying with bold confession, but he is God. He's God, but in flesh, in full. He's God come from heaven down to save us. This is the core of the Christian faith. Jesus is fully man, but still fully God. Come from heaven to save sinners. And there is salvation nowhere else because he's the only God. That is our confession. Indeed, note this. Turn over with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul, of course, is writing to his ministerial protege, Timothy, and he gives us what is perhaps the earliest written confession of the Christian faith. Now, for context, he's reminding Timothy what the church is. He says in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, if I delay... I'm writing that you would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So what's the church? It's a pillar. It upholds the tr- of the truth. The church is the support, the buttress, the protector, the guardian of God's truth to the world. But what is that truth? What's the truth that we've been entrusted with. Well, most fundamentally, it's this confession of verse 16, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. What is this? This is the good news. And the great news is, it's all about Jesus. Do you see this? This is the great mystery of godliness, that the eternal, the immortal God would come to earth. Namely, that He was, as it says, manifested in the flesh. Which means, He was first divine. He was God. He's the eternal God. But He took on flesh, humanity, and came here like us to save us. He was the one who was, it says, vindicated by the Spirit. Namely, that though Jesus was killed, though He died like a sinner, He was raised to life like the life-giving Son of God that He is. A status proven by the Spirit's resurrection of Him. He was seen by angels as He ascended into the heavens. He's proclaimed among the nations because He is the only God over all the peoples. He's believed on in the world because He is the only Savior given to the world, and He's taken up in glory to take the throne that only God can take. To this, the world says, no, 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 it cannot be. That makes no sense to us. He must only be a man. Yes, it may perhaps a great teacher, the world would say, but He is just a man. And to that, With boldness of faith, we confess, oh yes, he was a man, but here is the mystery. He is no mere man. He is God. He is God come to live. He is God who came to die. He is God who came to save. He is God who came to live again. He is the God who comes to give eternal life to all who believe in him, who too with sincerity of heart utter this same confession, Jesus, oh God, save me. This is what we say. This is what we confess. This is our faith. We have no hope outside of Him. We don't say this because it will make us popular. 
We say it because it's true. It's God's truth and the world won't like it. And why is that? Because when we say this, we're saying that all all other faiths and confessions, all other religions and philosophies are wrong. Lies, errors, damnable ones, to be clear. There's no hope outside of this Christ, outside of God's truth, outside of the truth that God is, Jesus is God come down. There's no Savior besides Him. Such that if you don't have this confession, whatever you have, you don't have a Christian, and whatever you have, you certainly don't have a church. You might have a building, and it's got the name church on it. You might have a religion with liturgy, rituals, and prayers. You might have a moral philosophy with ethics, do's and don'ts, and morals. But if you don't have Christ, if you don't confess faith in this Jesus, then you don't have a church, then you don't have salvation, then you don't have justice for your sins, except on you. So what about you? Back to that question. Who do you think Jesus is? Do you confess him to be the Christ, the saving son of God? This is the truth above all others that establishes his church. Indeed, that's where salvation begins. If that's not you, confess Christ today, now, in your chair, right here. And if it is you, you're part of this fellowship, hold us to it. May we not look anywhere else. What is the church? We are those who confess Christ into this world. Second, what is the church? We are those converted by the Father. We are converted by the Father to this confession. Verse 17, looking back now at Matthew 16. So indeed, it's this confession about Jesus that makes us, that defines us as the church. It distinguishes us as God's people. It even separates us from the world. But before your hand gets tired from patting yourself on the back because you were so keen and smart to figure that out, to come to faith in Christ all by yourself. And Jesus reveals, well, hold on, you weren't even the source of the faith that you have. The Father was. That is, we don't make this confession by studying really hard, praying a lot, reading a lot of philosophy, trying to be really holy, or getting theological degrees. This genuine internal faith that makes a genuine external confession. Such faith, such insight, such a revelation comes from God into the heart. What defines Christ's church? But that we are converted by the Father, irresistibly drawn to Jesus. This is who His church are. And so this comes as the affirming but humbling response that Jesus gives Peter. So back to our text. Jesus, of course, had posed the question, who do you all say that I am, my disciples? And Peter answers correctly, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As Jesus' reply that we look in verse 17 confirms, confirms that Peter got it right. Let's look at it. Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon of Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, this follow-up from Jesus is kind of like the revealing of the answer key. Did I get it right? And he says, Blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, 
ding, 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 ding. You're right. You got it. Way to go, man. You figured it out. Well done. Of course, Jesus does not go on to commend Peter's keen insight. That's not what explains why he's so blessed. This isn't about Peter being sharp or smart or insightful, nor is it even about his privileged seat to see all that Jesus had been doing. Way to go. You put two and two together. You're a sharp kid. Not at all. Jesus calls Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, blessed, but why? And so back to verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for, so here's the reason, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Why is he blessed? It wasn't because flesh and blood had taught him something. It wasn't that human teachers revealed this truth to him. It wasn't even that his own thoughts, observations, or mental acumen unlocked this great mystery. This confession that came out of Peter's mouth came from a changed heart. And one changed by a revelation not from men, but from God. That's when, what is meant by this expression, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This confession represents divine revelation. An uncovering of this truth by God that then, that then is made clear to Peter's heart. In that way, God must reveal Himself to you if you are to know Him, to trust Him. This means that being a Christian is more than just getting information from God. Like as you read His Bible or or as you hear the gospel preached and proclaimed. Now, you need all of that, yes. But it's more than just knowing facts about Jesus. That's not what we're getting at. It's more than just knowing about his deity, death, and resurrection. As important as those are, yet you must know those and you must understand those mentally. But confessing your faith is so much more than just knowing some religious formula and knowing the right words to say out of your mouth. You have to believe him. You have to trust in him. Trust in this Christ of the gospel. And that trust, that faith, that bedrock is the soil from which the outward confession springs. And that bedrock, that faith, is a gift from God. That faith is a spiritual insight, not merely to understand the facts about Christ and the gospel, namely is just truths out there that I can grammatically parse for you. Yes, yes, Jesus is God. He died on the cross for sins. Yes, He rose from the dead. But do you believe it? Do you know Him? Do you trust Him? Namely, that He is not just God out there, but He's God for you. Not that He just died on the cross, but He died for you. Not that He just came to die and rise again just for the sake of it, but He did it for you. This is what it means to confess and know that He is the Christ. This is what the Father reveals. Not truth out there, but that He came for a sinner, namely you. To explain this further, I want to show you one more passage. Turn over with me then to John chapter 6. So we're in Matthew's gospel, going to go right in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of John's gospel. And I want to go here because we get something of the explanation for why some people believe and some people don't. Why do some people trust Christ and others do not? And so in John 6, 
And where we'll start is in verse 36. The situation here is just stated rather concisely, succinctly. So look at it. Let's look at John 6, 36. Jesus says, But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. He's talking to these Jewish leaders. They've seen Jesus. Uh, they've witnessed firsthand His incredible signs and miracles. And the one that prompted this was the feeding of the 5,000. And yet, though they've seen so clear a miracle, they don't believe. Why not? They don't give their souls and trust their souls to Christ. And why not? Well, understand, it's not because the evidence wasn't clear. It's because their hearts are hard. They're blinded by their sin and unbelief. Otherwise, they would have come forward, as Jesus goes on to explain. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, will come. Not may, might, possibly. They will. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's not an option. And so then we still come to the question, so what's the difference? What's the difference between the one who hears the gospel, sees Jesus at work, and comes forward in faith versus the one who sees the same thing, hears the same gospel, but doesn't come forward? Look down to verse 44. Here's the difference, Jesus says. For some, for His chosen, for the elect, the Father overcomes our unbelieving blindness, even if He has to drag us away to do it. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Notice how absolute that is. No one. No one will come. Not an option. Impossible. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You will not come forward in genuine faith unless the Father does a work in the heart, unless He draws, He pulls, or even drags you by faith to trust in Christ. God intervenes in the heart, removing the veil of unbelief, and He draws you to see the greatness of Christ. Irresistibly so that you just come. You can't do any other. And if that be how it works, then what credit can you take for your own faith in Jesus? Was it because you were smarter than other other people? Is that why you came to faith? No, it's because you were more spiritually sincere than other people? More sensitive than other people? To the moving of the Spirit, so-called? Or or is it, I just studied a lot harder? I just more sincerely sought the truth? Nope. It's none of those things. Why did you come to faith? Because God gave you the gift of faith to see the greatness of Christ. In Paul's words of 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 6, he says this, For God who said, you know, this is creation, right? Let light shine out of darkness. God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You come to see and recognize the greatness of Jesus in the gospel such that you irresistibly trust him, you love him, you want to live for him, you give your soul to him. This is the intervention of the Father in your heart. 
He gives you the gift of faith, or other words in John chapter 3, he causes you to be born again. And that means for this, what credit can you take? None. He gets all the glory for it. Or back to Jesus' words in Matthew 16, verse 17. Blessed are you, O chosen believer. Why? For flesh and blood is not revealed unto you, but the Father who is in heaven has. Those who come to Christ by faith are these. Those are the ones who make up the church. These are born-again believers graced with faith, brought to confess Jesus as the Christ. And so if the church would be comprised of the converted by the Father, what does this mean about us? Three things. It means we may be bold confessors in a dark world, but we had better be humble ones, humble with our faith. It's interesting, despite what our pride might think, a doctrine sometimes called of irresistible grace, that God draws us to Himself, that God even grants the faith to save us, some of us can get rather arrogant about this. We can argue with other Christians about it adamantly. And yet, this doctrine should humble us, especially as it shows in our mission to the unbelieving world. Because in the first, what does this mean? If God is the one who does the work in the heart, if conversions ultimately come from God's work in the heart, what does this mean? You can't make people believe in Jesus. You just can't do it. You can't just mount up the best arguments for the Christian faith or present just the slickest gospel presentation, and voila, conversions necessarily happen. I know several times as I've shared the gospel with folks and debated Christianity, I've won the argument. I would press and press and answer objection after objection, posing argument and proof right back at them. And yet they still didn't believe. Why not? I've even asked them, well, why don't you believe? And I get this Profound answer. I don't know. Why not? Because this isn't about rational thought only. It includes rational thought, of course. But what do you need? You need the work of the Spirit in the heart to overcome the unbelieving heart. You need the Father to give you the eyes to see. As we see conversions, and we should, that's a good, great thing. But the conversion itself is something beyond your pay grade. Even when it comes to your kids, that's the Spirit's work. We sow the Word, we pray, and we ask God be merciful. Second then, what does this mean in our mission? It's much more about faithfulness than results. The results are up to God. We're just called to be faithful confessors, messengers. Are you saying we shouldn't want conversions or decisions or that we shouldn't pray for those things? Oh no, please pray. Plead with all your heart for God to work. And many of you do this. And why do we pray? Because God is the one who does the work. It's not you. It's not your better argument. Plead, but don't pressure and manipulate. Don't tamper with the gospel to make it more palatable. 
Faithfully speak Christ. Earnestly pray God's Spirit would work with His Word as He's prone to do. And so success for us means not conversions. We can't do that, but it means faithfulness, doesn't it? Faithfulness to speak the gospel more than it means the results of it. Also, this means if a changed, converted heart stems from the Father's work and not ours, this means you shouldn't be angry or upset or feel animosity when people oppose you. In the first place, you've got to know you're no better than them when they reject the gospel. You have no right to self-righteous angst because you too would do and did oppose Christ in the gospel until Christ just mercifully opened your eyes. Would you angrily condemn a blind man who couldn't see the sun? Again, we got to be humble with this truth. Patiently teach the word. Like Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 26, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In other words, the unbeliever is not our enemy, even when they oppose us and reject the gospel. Satan's the enemy. Those you're speaking to, they just need to hear Christ and they need the spirit to work. So pray for them. Don't scold them, belittle, scorn them. Pray for them. But finally then, Genuine faith is truly a gift of God. You know what this means. It means that you can have confidence as you look to a future salvation. The future of the church. Why is that? Because it doesn't rest on you. It's not a work you're building. Christ is. Because be sure, Christ will win. He will save the church will endure because it doesn't rest on you. Even as Jesus goes on to say in our text, and we'll look at it, Lord willing, next time, I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Shall not, cannot happen. Christ will see to it. So then no, brothers and sisters, the gospel will not be extinguished. The faith of his people will not be snuffed out. The doubts of the struggling will not win the day. They cannot overcome God's gift of faith in the end. The church will not be defeated because our life, our existence, even our faith rests not on our strength and our plans or our abilities because don't you see it rests on the risen Jesus, God in the flesh. We are built on, we rest upon him. Death couldn't defeat him. Doubts couldn't take him. Sin couldn't subdue him or sink him. Hell, Satan, and all the devil's angels couldn't stop him. He is still alive, and so is his church, because there he lives, so we will never be defeated. And yes, understand, that includes even you, dear believer. Even as the sin and temptation seems so strong, he will not give up on you. He will not cast you out, but he will keep you to the very end, finishing the work he begun. John chapter 10, verses 27 and following. My sheep, my people, hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. That's the irresistible work of the Father's calling. 
I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and they are decided his church will survive, and so will your faith. This is God's work. This is Christ's church. And our confidence, even into this darkening future, it lies right there. Not in our strength, not even in the strength of our faith, but His and His faithfulness. Let us build our faith on Him together. Let's pray for this. Oh God, thank you for the gift of your word, these truths that by your Spirit themselves give us life. Pray that you would quicken your word that's been preached in the hearts of your people. That we would know that you are alive and at work, that you will finish the work that you've begun for your church, but even for every individual believer, that you will complete the work that you've begun unto the day of Christ. And in such confidence, may we be bold to confess you, even as we're opposed by the world, even as they misconstrue our words of love and the mercy we speak. May we do so most humbly following after your example, our humble Christ who came down from heaven to show us what it means to give up yourself for another. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise your name. We pray that from us you would receive all the praise you're worthy of. May we be faithful witnesses and confessors to the very end. And we pray that with confidence, not because of us, but because of you. For it's in your name alone we pray. Amen.